Now, carrying on from last week, again, this is God's providence. Some of you are thinking, oh no, we weren't expecting this, we weren't expecting to see this bloke again. Two weeks in a row, um, Nathan was going to be speaking to this morning, but of course with the, the whole COVID thing, um, he's not able to. So I, I happily stepped in in his place, uh, very happy to sort of continue with some of the thoughts that we began together last week. You remember uh, we looked at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, you may remember young Noah that I used to illustrate the before and after uh, idea that Paul uses in this context. You were dead, but now you were made alive. And that same theme continues today here, happily using uh, Jason Edmiston's artwork. Now, in fairness to Jason Edmiston, I don't think he would have had any idea of this sort of application of this painting, but it serves my purpose as well to, again, capture that before and after. When we lived in the flesh, our lives were characterised by rebellion, conflict and, and dysfunction. When we left the world, as it were, to enter into Christ, what a change. We were made alive, we were reconciled, and we entered into a world of shalom, peace and well-being. That is a life lived according to God's purposes for us. That's not necessarily an easy life, a bed of roses, as it were, as as Jack illustrated in, in referring to the book of Job. Sometimes the righteous do suffer. But we enter into a life that is wholesome and good according to God's purposes for us. A life of Shabbat, rest. A life of fulfilment of God's purposes for us. But two, as we move our attention from the first ten verses of uh, Ephesians chapter 2 to the next several verses which is the focus of our attention this morning we notice a shift from the individual you were as individuals he says to the Gentiles remember you were dead in your sins and trespasses but now you he made alive in Christ and now the transition is going to be the same picture the before and after but now the focus is upon the community the society of God's people as we move out of the world into Christ as his family, as his church. And so this illustration, I think, well captures that that sense of um, before and after, not thinking so much of the individual but thinking of ourselves as part of a community, part of a, a society. Again, though, from devastation from alienation from God and all of the dysfunction and the violence that goes with that to peace and everything orderly according to God's purposes. So let's read together chapter 2 in Ephesians verses 11 and 12. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Again, that gloomy picture of their former state, without hope, without God in this world. Here he speaks of the past condition 
of the Gentiles as a group. Uncircumcision is a derogatory term. It's an ethnic slur. And I think it's Paul is signalling, though Paul is giving his consent to the bottom line here, he's signalling that essence of what we would call racism that existed between the Jews on the one hand and everybody else on the other hand. That disposition of the Jew towards the Gentile, the circumcised regarding the uncircumcised. There was a rabbinic saying, just for example, Gentiles are fuel for the flames of hell. Gentiles are fuel for the flames of hell. God's purpose for Gentiles, God created Gentiles simply to stoke the fires of hell. Now that's a profound statement. Profound in the sense that it, it, it highlights the degree of not just animosity but absolute disrespect for that class of human beings that happen to be not Jews. In fact, we often are horrified today when we hear of racism and, and we hear people, if not speaking, at least thinking and perhaps behaving in terms of treating other human beings as second class, as subhuman, less than fully human. The Jews here, at least as represented in the thinking of the rabbis in this period of history, was not that the Gentiles were subhuman, the Gentiles were not human. They were just fuel for God's amusement in staking the fires of hell. But amidst this racism, Paul makes the point, nonetheless, of the Gentile world, you were separated, you were alienated, you were strangers, you were without hope and without God. But I want you to notice this. It was a self-imposed exile. The Gentiles had walked away from God. Humanity had walked away from God. If we're familiar with the narrative of the scriptures, we recognise that beginning with the garden, when Adam and Eve choose to rebel against God, and as a consequence of their rebellion, they're cast out from the garden, they're cast out from the presence of God. It was only through, really, the faith of that one man we know of as Abraham, one human being at that point in history which God could reach down, as it were, and use him to accomplish his purposes. And God's purposes were what? To redeem all of humanity, indeed to redeem all of creation, which had become impacted, had become corrupted by sin. Self-imposed exile. It's not that God rejected humanity. It's that humanity rejected God. If you want a clear picture of that process, read carefully Romans chapter 1. And of course, when we think about racism, it's no, we're no stranger. We're no better today than the Jews were of even a few centuries ago. Uh, just last week, in the space of a week, you'll remember from the headlines, Buffalo shooting, gunman allegedly did reconnaissance of area before rampage killing of 10 black people. A total of 13 people, 10 killed, 10 black people killed because this was a white fella f- focusing on trying to murder black fellas. 
Two others or three others were injured, two white people and, and another black person. But ten were killed purely and simply because of the colour of their skin. The picture there, the image, people pray outside the scene of a mass shooting at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, Sunday photograph from the 14th of May 2022. And of course it's still fresh in our memories, uh, George Floyd, if I could say it, murdered just as recently as 2020, uh, gave impetus to what became the Black Lives Matter movement, which was spread way beyond the boundaries of the US uh, to affect most countries in the world. Again, symbolic, if you will, of the racism that is rampant even in our world, even in the West, even today. And of course, we think of the likes of Martin Luther King, who was assassinated in 1968. And despite of all of the protests, all of the hard social work, as it were, to confront a society like the USA, not that the, not that the USA has a, uh, 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 like dibs on this as if a society like Australia or the UK is, is much different because we're not, but to focus upon the racism the social injustice that existed in that point in time, even to the point of being murdered for the cause. The tragedy is that not a great deal has changed in the hearts of people even since then. How did Israel get it so wrong? How did Israel end up racist? Well, I want to remind you of a few texts of scripture. First of all, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the promise of God to Abraham, which really started the whole thing in the beginning. Now, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonours you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. There it is. There is the, there is the foundation for the rest of the Old Testament story, if you will, that unfolds from this point forward. The fulfilment of God's promise to Abraham, make of you a great nation, I'm going to give you this land, and through you I'm going to bless all peoples. And what I want you to focus on now is the, is the reality that it was always God's intention that Israel be a blessing, God's instrument of blessing to all peoples, to all nations. We continue in Deuteronomy chapter 4, for example, the context of Deuteronomy. Some people have described it as a, like a bunch of sermons that, that, that uh, Moses is giving to Israel just prior to their entering into the promised land. That timing is important for us to appreciate because here is Moses who struggled with these people for some 40 odd years through the exodus out of Egypt being their champion, you remember, with the ten plagues, etc. Even even with the niggling opposition from within Israel itself. And then we move to the aborted attempt to 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 conquer Canaan because of the faithlessness on the part of the spies, you'll remember. And so God signs them up, if you will, to 
40 years of wandering in the wilderness to test them. And now here we are after that long, long, long struggle that Moses has had in leading these people. And of course Moses was not to be privileged to lead them. That mantle would pass to Joshua. But at this point in time, after all of this struggle and hardship and ingratitude that Moses was on the receiving end of from the people, this is his farewell address. And among among other things that he has to say to them, he reminds them of this. I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you were entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, other peoples, not just Israel, but the other nations around you, who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely... This great nation, Israel, the people of God, is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God's purpose for Israel, if they, if they played their part, if they kept their end of the bargain, if you will, the covenant that God made with Israel, they would be a shining light to the surrounding nations. God's purpose for them was that they, through their faithfulness and the blessings that would flow to them according to the terms of the covenant that he had made with them, the blessings that would flow to them, the wisdom that would be evident in the law of Moses, etc., etc. The people around them would say, I want some of that. Man, oh man. The light on the proverbial hill to attract all peoples to God. That was God's purpose for the nation of Israel. But it all hinged upon, of course, their keeping their end of the bargain. They're being faithful. As a summary statement, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 3, notice this. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. In simple bottom line terms, that was God's purpose for Israel. That Israel in their faithfulness would glorify God. And that all peoples accordingly would come to God as a result. I want what they've got. I want what they've got. And this wasn't because of any inherent goodness or specialness, if you will, on the part of Israel. Moses makes that very clear to the people in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Holy, that is set apart to God. Let the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. You're special, yes, but because God has chosen you. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers to Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, because of God's covenant faithfulness. That's why the people of Israel are special. 
It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers and the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love and those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. The elect, the election of Israel. An election is just a fancy way of saying the chosenness of Israel. They were chosen because of God's faithfulness, not their superiority over others, other peoples in any way. They were chosen to demonstrate God's glory. Election is a responsibility, not just a privilege. It is a privilege and an honour. But only in so much as we accept the responsibility as the people of God that goes with that specialness. Election, chosenness is a gift. Nothing, nothing at all to boast about. And so we have this pattern that carries over from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. God blesses, God chooses, God takes the initiative, grace. And in response to that, the people of God get to live the blessed life, faithfulness, as God's instruments of blessing others. That was God's purpose for Ancient Israel, as we've noted. And if you're not making the connection, I want to suggest to you very bluntly that it's also God's purpose for us as his church today. New Israel, if you will. Messianic Israel. There's no merit in our becoming the children of God. That's only possible on the basis of what God accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. But as we respond to that grace on God's part, that invitation from God, we have the very real blessing and the very real responsibility in being called to faithfulness that God might be glorified and that we in turn might become God's instruments of blessing in this world. The order is not we're worthy And therefore God blesses us as some sort of a reward for our goodness. That's not the way, even though that's the way much of the religion in the world seems to operate. If we do this or we believe that, then then God will be pleased with us and we'll be blessed accordingly. That's not God's way. The order is reversed. God blesses and in being blessed we're called to faithfulness. So from reflecting God's glory to reflecting their own glory, racism. How did we get there? How did Israel get there? If God's purpose for them was to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a blessing to the Gentiles, how did we end up with the sort of the uncircumcision that we've been introduced to by Paul in in Ephesians chapter 2? Unworthy, not even to be counted as humans, how did we get there? How did Israel get there? Well, we think of Jonah in the Old Testament, which is just a story of racism. It's an extraordinary story. 
you remember, in a nutshell, God tells Jonah, the prophet, the Israelite prophet, to go to Nineveh, a Gentile peoples, and to warn them of God's judgment, God's pending judgment. And you remember, well, Jonah's response is to go in exactly the opposite direction. And then as the story unfolds, it's a bit unusual, the response from Jonah, but as the story unfolds, particularly when you get to the end of the story, it becomes very apparent. Jonah was a racist. I don't want to go to them, God. I don't want to even give them the chance to repent because then I know that you're a good God, you're a gracious God. You'll let them off the hook. And that's, and that's an outcome that's unacceptable to me, unthinkable. And that last chapter, what a, what a pathetically sad image we're left with of Jonah. He was happy to let a whole Gentile society die under fire and brimstone or whatever God had prepared for them. Quite happy for that to happen, hoping that would happen. Takes his position on a hillside, hoping to have a front seat view of it all in in the hopes that God would respond that way. But he was worried about the welfare of a plant that served his selfish interests in the moment. Think how perverse that is. Think about Jesus' engagement with the Samaritan woman. All of the prejudices that surround that incident. Even to the point where the disciples were surprised, horrified, that Jesus would engage. Remember her surprise when Jesus, as a Jew, you're talking to me? How is that so? How is that so? And we rightly marvel at how Jesus overcame, rose above the common prejudices of the day. But don't miss the point. That was the common prejudice of the day. If a Jew had the option, they would avoid going through Samaria just so they would avoid the Samaritan people. It's kind of like if you were walking down the road and there was an individual, you you would cross the other side of the road just so you could avoid them, avoid eye contact even with them, to present them as you're nothing to me. Paul, in Acts 21, we're told that Paul is seen with Trophimus in, he was from Ephesus, a Gentile from Ephesus. He was seen in Jerusalem in the proximity of the temple and the Jews assumed that this guy, Paul, has brought this Gentile into the temple. And the end result of that was a riot. A riot that was sufficient that the Roman guard had to intervene. How on earth did the people of God end up consumed with this sort of hatred on the simple basis of racism? Uh, in Acts chapter 2, even, even in the church, Acts chapter 2, uh, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With the benefit of hindsight, we understand that that was God's invitation to all peoples, both Jew and Gentile. But the, the Jewish church didn't hear that. They didn't hear that. You know, we marvel at how 
the church in the modern era, and by that I mean in the past, say, two or three hundred years, uh, with blights like, social blights like slavery, for example, that the church could have behaved, could have, could have been accepting of such things. Well, they were the same, suffering from the same blindness that's expressed here. Whatever, whatever those who are far off couldn't possibly, that's the diaspora, that's all the Jews that are spread, couldn't possibly refer to the Gentiles, surely. Surely, even you'll remember well, leading up to the very first Gentile to be converted to Christ, Cornelius in his household, it took special intervention from God to get Peter to even go to the household of a Gentile. In chapter 11, we got the response of the church hearing of what Peter had done. This guy had baptised Gentiles. And if you don't get it, that's about the same impact as if you'd heard that Wollstoneholm has gone and baptised dogs. Stop it! That's very inappropriate. Why would you do such a thing? That was the thinking among the Jews, even the Christian Jews of the day. That's how deep and wide the divide Socially, culturally, ethnically there was between the Jew and the Gentile. I'm emphasising this to appreciate this point. In Christ Jesus, God did the impossible by bringing together both Jew and Gentile into one family, into one household, the church. The Jews weren't the only racists, of course. The privileges at law are exclusive to Roman citizens. Do you remember Paul? He was a Roman citizen. Do you remember he was uh, imprisoned in Ephesus, for example, beaten and imprisoned? And what was the reaction of the, the community leaders once they found out that Paul was a Roman citizen? Oh, my goodness. It's all right to, pe- to treat trash like trash, but... Hey, Roman citizens aren't trash like everyone else. And they were fearful, remember, and they tried to move them on quietly and as quickly as, as possible. You, you remember that. You remember that. The Greeks, among the Greeks, speaking Greek was a sign of sophistication and being cultured. And, of course, not to speak Greek was the opposite. Non-Greek speaking peoples were disdained and described as barbarians. And that's quite literally derived from ba, 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 ba. And it's, and it's an insult. It is an insult based upon, again, that ethnic divide, that cultural divide between people. Then and now, racism has been a major source of ill-feeling, conflict, injustice and violence. And today, for all of our sophistication... For all of our political correctness, etc., in the West, we've still got the rise of identity politics, which fundamentally, people, is a return to good old-fashioned tribalism. 
a return to the very sorts of things that we've been describing this morning. Um, just a, a definition for identity politics, if you're not familiar with the concept. It's a political approach wherein people of a particular gender, religion, race, social background, social class, environmental or other identifying factors develop political agendas that are based upon these identities. And they usually occupy the position where the victims, where the victims say, you owe us. But it's fundamentally a return to that very sort of condition that existed with the Jewish and Gentile divide. Um, this is a place where, can I say that Galatians chapter 3 verses 26 through 28 belong? Uh, scriptures that grossly misapplied these days by many, even believers. But it's not meaningless in what it says. In Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now Paul is not saying there is no longer any difference or there's no such thing as male and female anymore or or Jew and Gentile, etc. Of course, you read his letters, they're riddled with, with consideration to those very conditions, those very differences. What he's saying is, stop the worthiness tests based upon gender or ethnicity or social standing, rich or poor. Stop all that stuff, the hierarchy business. None of that applies in Christ. You want to think of hierarchies in the church? Well, it's very simple. You've got Christ as the head, that's it. Christ as the head, the rest of us are servants. We serve in different ways, in different capacities, in different roles, just as, you know, Paul's analogy, the body, the church is the body of Christ, and just as the body has many different members, but despite that diversity... Expressions of our service to God and to one another. We are unified as members of one body. Branches of the one vine. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So we've looked at the before, not a pretty picture. Now the after picture, the present condition of the Gentiles, he is our peace. That is, peace is found in Christ, in communion with Christ, in fellowship, in relationship with Christ, in the church. Biblically speaking, the world is divided into two classes of individual. Not based upon accidents of birth 
whether that be your ethnicity, your race, particular race, where you were born, nor, nor is it based upon the haves and have-nots divide, which again is largely due to an accident of birth. I mean, if we're privileged to be born into the Western world today, we're automatically, even though we might consider ourselves working class or even, even barely eking out a living on the poverty line, we're still rich compared with the vast majority of the world's population. Or whether we are gendered as male or female. All of those things are outside of our control, as it were. No, 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 no. The divide's not based upon things that are imposed upon us. The divide is based squarely upon our choice. Whether we choose to be reconciled to God through his son Jesus Christ or not. And on that basis, there's only one of two classes of person. Those who are in Christ, the body of Christ. And those who are not in the body of Christ are outside of Christ and living, to use Paul's language, living in the flesh, living their life according to their dictates rather than according to God. And Paul uses two interesting images here, and I need to move quickly, but it's important that we appreciate this. First of all, he refers to the temple. When he talks about um, breaking down uh, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, he's speaking here of the temple. And we recognise that the temple, as it stood, the second temple, remember we had the tabernacle given in the wilderness for the travelling of the people, given at Mount Sinai, remember, And then we had Solomon building the magnificent temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And then, of course, that was destroyed by the Babylonians. And later we've got the second temple, which reached its climax with the the building, can I say, ego trip, if you will, of of Herod. Uh, It was a magnificent complex, a magnificent construction but it was all to Herod's glory. That temple, that Jesus himself walked around with his disciples and and the disciples went, look how fantastic this is. And at that point, the finishing touches were still, there was still a number of years to go before it was finished. Look how great it is. And Jesus announces much to their dismay. You know what? This is all going to come crumbling down. And John makes the point of letting us know that Jesus was speaking, equating himself with the temple. Yes, the temple would be torn down, but that in three days it would be raised up again. That temple and all of its cultus, all of that complex stuff, the priesthood and all of the stuff that they did, the sacrifices, all of that, all of that stuff. You could just be so grateful that we don't live under that covenant because, I mean, it would give you a headache trying to figure out what, 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 what does God want, what did God not want. It's pretty simple when it's broken down to love God and love your neighbour. But all of that anticipated and pointed towards and was fulfilled in Jesus, in his death, his burial and his resurrection. And rain. And then secondly, there's the law of Moses. 
which again we understand is fulfilled. Listen to Paul in Galatians chapter 3. The law was our guardian until, notice the time element, up to the point when Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, now that we have Christ, the object of our faith, now that we have the new covenant established, the objective faith by which we seek to live our lives before God. Now that all of that has happened, we are no longer under a guardian. We're no longer under the law, the law of Moses. So both the temple and the law of Moses had been taken out of the way. And the implication is very clearly that they were a barrier between Gentile and Jew when they stood in place. And I want to sort of quickly explain that to you. Um, Here is an archaeological uh, discovery of a sign that uh, we knew about it historically through the writings of somebody like Josephus, for example, makes explicit reference to this. But here was a marvellous thing is to have the, 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 the relic itself, the real deal, instead of just reading in, in, in a history book. Israel's temple was absolutely off limits to Gentiles. This sign was found spread around on a fence that marked off the territory, signalling that Gentiles are allowed out here, the court of the Gentiles, but you pass this point at peril of death. The sign says no stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the temple and enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. The temple provided a barrier between Jew and Gentile. Even within the temple complex itself, you remember there were barriers. There was the female court, the point where women could go but no further. And then, of course, in the temple itself, it was exclusively the the domain of the priests from the tribe of Levi. And then, of course, to function as the high priest, that was exclusive to go into the holiest, the holy of holies, only on one day a year. And there was only one person who could, was privileged to do that. There was only one person who could go there. And that was, of course, the, the high priest. And to be the high priest, you had to be uh, in the lineage of Aaron, the first high priest. The temple was full of these, you can go so far, but you better stop. You can go so far, but you better stop. All of that was done away. And I want to suggest that all of that was served to signal to people, Jew and Gentile alike, that there was a barrier between us and God. Some of us might be closer than others, but all of us are barred at some point, at some level, and now all of that's gone. Because in Christ Jesus, it's just one big fat invitation to all. Come. Come. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich or poor, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Come. The law. The law is a barrier between the Jew and Gentile. Again, related to that theme of holiness, Listen carefully to this introduction. Again, reading this time from Leviticus chapter 18. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. 
You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt, where you've come from, where you, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. So where you've been, where you're going, you're not to be like those peoples. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And so we have the law of Moses, which as it's come to us today, when we, when we sit down and read our Old Testaments, we kind of marvel a bit about it because it's, 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 it's got all sorts of cultic rules and regulations around the priesthood and the, and the temple service, etc. And then there's all sorts of rules about morality uh, and ethics. And there's also a whole lot of rules that we just scratch our heads and we think, what on earth? For example, uh, chapter 19 in Leviticus, beginning in verse 26, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. What's that about? You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. Well, we've got a sense of what that's about. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. Now, a lot of people today pick up these sorts of statements in the scripture and say, oh, you want to apply, you want to apply the Bible, then you've got to be consistent, you've got to apply this as well. Well, they're profoundly ill-informed theologically with that sort of thinking. But I do want to notice that there is a lot of weird stuff in the law of Moses. And I want to remind you of the context of the giving of law of Moses as we noted earlier in chapter 18. God's intention was to keep his people holy, that is separate and apart from the Egyptian culture and the Canaanite culture. And so in part of enforcing this separation, don't you be like them. And these are explicit examples of don't you, don't they, they eat the flesh with the blood in it. Don't you do that. They engage in all sorts of witchcraft and, and, and telling fortunes and whatnot. Don't you do that. They apparently were doing something with their hair. Don't you do that. Even today, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of cute. Uh, the ultra-Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews of today, uh, and here are some young men, uh, they've interpreted this quite literally, of course assuming that they're still under the law of Moses. And that's the way that, that it's outcome. Now that's pretty weird, it's a bit strange, but that was the point. <laughs> it was to make Israel strange. All of those difficult regulations, the, the, the dietary laws and what on, it was, to, it was to keep them peculiar, to keep them apart, to keep them separated. And all of that was essential to God's purposes for them and the law of Moses at that period of history, at that point in time. But again, all of that's been removed, all of that's been fulfilled. It's not failed, it's accomplished its purpose. And so it's been retired, it's been laid aside it was a guardian, remember, until Christ came. But now that Christ has come, well done, Law of Moses. You've served your purpose. You've done your job. You're retired. And now in its place, we have, of course, Christ and the new covenant. For though 
for through him, sorry, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the reference here to the foundation brought together and he uses the metaphor of a building and that foundation he describes as the apostles and the prophets. Um, There's no luxury of time to, to sort of expand upon that. Does that refer to the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament prophets? Um, I suspect it refers to the Old Testament prophets. I think it's code for what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, just as the apostles today would be code for the New Testament scriptures. Bottom line is, you build upon the foundation of scripture. You build upon the foundation of scripture. And he talks about Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so with the image as this drawing here illustrates, the cornerstone was the first point that set everything else. And so everything was squared to and aligned to that, to that chief cornerstone. That's Jesus in relation to this building, which is a temple, which is made up of us. Some scholars have suggested that um, uh, perhaps it's really talking about the capstone and there's an illustration of the capstone to give you the sense and and you can readily recognise that that capstone at the top there marked in red, highlighted in red, you remove that and the whole structure will collapse. It's what what takes, bears all the pressure and holds everything, everything together. I suspect whichever way you go, you've got an accurate picture of Jesus in relation to his church. Cornerstone, capstone, he's both. And so we are a new holy temple, holy, separated to God and his purposes. All of us, that is, who are in Christ. All of us who by faith have chosen, all of us who by faith have said yes to God in Jesus Christ. That's the church. That's the church. But don't forget the background from where we've come. The fussing and the fighting and the hatred and the violence of racism. Paul's used the illustration of the Jewish and Gentile divide. And that same challenge that existed two centuries ago exists just as significantly, just it permeates our societies just as much today. And we have no greater or no lesser challenge, sorry, today in the church than they did in the first century. To grapple with those cultural divides that are the fruit, if you will, of sin. Not for us. Not for us, surely. Because In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. Because all of us, regardless of any and all of those differences, all of us are one in Christ. In that sense, you might consider that baptism is the great leveller, as it were, 
We might go down into the water with very different histories, very different circumstances, but we all come up the same. We all come up children of God in Christ Jesus, subjects to King Jesus. And so I want to conclude with this. This is a wonderful illustration. This is something you can use in a whole lot of different contexts. Um, If we were talking about communication, it would be a good example of how you need to be careful of the ambiguity of language. We love hurting people. My purpose in highlighting that now is that we need to make a choice as a church, as the people of God. Because, Because the church can go one of two ways, just as that statement can be interpreted one of two ways. Where the church does not rise to the challenge of being non-conforming to the world, but rather having our minds transformed and being renewed in Christ. The church, for many people, can be a source of much grief and hurt and pain. Or the church can be a a refuge an oasis where we can escape all of that division and separation and animosity in the world and come and be one people in Christ. Christ's church, I think, ideally should be defined or understood as a family characterised by inclusiveness and unity, reflecting God's redemptive purposes for all creation a public hospital for sinners of all types, colours and sizes, rather than an exclusive club for saints of only certain types. I want to conclude with this text. This image from Revelation. Revelation chapter 5, where where the, the throne scene is described. As I understand it, the time uh, of the, the coronation of Christ, after his, after his ascension into the heavenlies, having accomplished all he did through the incarnation, through his suffering, through his death, burial and resurrection, through, as, as Luke describes it, as he's appearing to the disciples for, for a period of some 40-odd days, presenting himself with empirical proofs about his resurrection. And then you'll remember Jesus gives the marching orders to the apostles and by extension his marching orders to his church today. Those who were built upon the foundation, remember, of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples of all people. All people, not just Jews or Australians, not just white or black or whatever. All peoples. Remember, this is the culmination of God's purpose through Israel, through Messiah, to be a blessing to all peoples, baptising them into the name of the Father and the Son. There has to be the relationship established because we are all alienated because we've separated ourselves from God. We have to be reconciled. So we have to be born anew, baptising them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and then teaching them those baptised ones, those disciples, all things whatsoever that I command you. He ascends to heaven to take his place 
on the throne at the right-hand side of the Father. And part of the image there is this. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. For every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. We shall reign on the earth. Well, we're reigning in so much as we're living out the gospel in our lives as a church, as individuals, as a community.